Hello and welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. I'm Eric Fisher. This is the podcast where we talk to the people behind the productivity, not just about becoming more effective and efficient, but about doing work with meaning and purpose. This week I'm talking with Charles Duhigg in a brief conversation about the power of habit. We've touched on habit before with Tony Stubblebine, but this time we're getting right to the core. What a habit is, how it works, etc. It's a little bit shorter of a conversation. However, the episode is not shorter because afterwards I unpack personally what the conversation was about and some next steps and homework even if you dare to take on some of the challenges. Before you listen to that conversation, I'm going to say thank you to Doodle for sponsoring this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Doodle is an online scheduling tool that I use and 24 million other people use monthly to schedule their events, meetings, appointments, etc. It simplifies the process because all you need to do is send a poll, your proposed times for the meeting, and then let the other person or persons select what works for them, and then Doodle keeps track of it all and lets you know what works for everyone instead of making you herd those cats. It's so much more easy to schedule a meeting with Doodle. Trust me. I've done so, I don't know how many times in the past couple weeks, few weeks here where it's just been, okay, we got to get this meeting on the books. Doodle makes it so much easier. Go to beyondthetodolist.com slash doodle. They even have personal branding pages for free called Meet Me. Doodle Premium as well for $39 for a year, as well as amazing new apps to go mobile. So check it all out, beyondthetodolist.com slash doodle. This week, my guest is Charles Duhigg, author of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thanks for having me on. So what, what about you interested you in this topic of habits? Well, uh, the reporting for this really started when I was a reporter in Iraq, and I discovered that one of the tactics that the military was using to stop riots from happening was to influence the habits of groups of people by doing things like removing food vendors from plazas. And when I got back to the U.S., I got really interested in this and spent a little bit more time looking into it and discovered that we're living through this golden age of understanding the neurology of habit formation, and that as a result, we know a lot about how habits form and what it takes to change them. Yes, definitely. Well, after reading the book, and honestly, I've had a hard time putting it down because I just found it fascinating how the wiring of habits and and writing over old habits and how they're still there and everything, just it was fascinating to me and and my geeky, nerdy side. So um, obviously the question is, what is a habit? Well, what we now know because of experiments that have been done in neurological laboratories is that every habit has three components. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward, which is how your brain learns to remember that pattern and make it automatic. And, you know, we've sort of known about cues and rewards for obviously decades. But what's important about this is that the experiments that have been done recently really show how powerful those cues and rewards are, that, that oftentimes they operate independently independently, even more importantly than the behavior. And so if you can diagnose and play with those cues and rewards, you can change how people automatically behave. Yeah, it's fascinating to me just some of the stories that are in the book in terms of, you know, people that had been doing the same behaviors over and over and over again. And and, and actually, that's one of the things is we don't even sometimes totally realize how 
what we're doing is is creating cues and responses and, and triggers and all that. And it's just – it's one of those things where what do you think caused people to start to really like just become fascinated with why are – well, you know the science behind it. Why are habits forming? Why you know are we looking to try and you know maybe take control of them, being able to change fully change those things about us? Or well, I, I think that people have always been fascinated by their own habits, right? I mean, it, ever since Aristotle, people have been talking about trying to improve their habits or change them. William James, who's kind of the father of American psychology. Um, wrote a whole book called On Habits because we, there's this fundamental understanding that what we do every day matters a lot. And what we do without sort of our active thinking participation matters a huge amount. Um, I think that the big insight from the last decade is that habits are much more malleable than we thought they were. Right? There was, there's always been this kind of cultural conception that, that you can't teach an old dog new tricks and that once a habit is set in place, it's really hard to change. But that's not really accurate. The more and more we learn about how habits work, the more and more we begin to appreciate that really any habit can be changed. It doesn't matter how old you are, how ingrained the behavior is. If you can diagnose the, the drivers of it, the cues and the rewards, you can figure out how to change it. Yeah. As I was reading it, I mean there's the story in the beginning about the, the man who had the, the brain problem and I just kept reading that and thinking of a recent time for myself where my wife and I decided, okay, we're going to redo the kitchen. We're going to change everything around. And suddenly the silverware drawer is in an t- entirely different place. And how it took me literally like six months of going to the wrong drawer over and over again to finally lock it in. And I wasn't doing anything you know, conscious or swapping out you know, adapting an old habit. It just – it took forever and, and how you know, memory played into that. It was, it was very interesting to read that. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 really powerful. I mean, I, everyone knows the power of habits. They sort of know about them in their own lives. And and once you begin recognizing them, there was a study that was done by a university researcher at Duke University who found that about 40 to 45% of everything we do every day is a habit. So almost half of what we do are these things that kind of exist a little bit beyond our consciousness. Yeah. Well, and what I found fascinating as well was the idea that the brain wants to create habits, that the brain is always looking to have to use less energy. And so by doing something called chunking, it was able to break these habits into effect kind of being hardwired and automatic behavior instead of having to use up its effort and make decisions. That's right. That's exactly right. So I think that that's one of those things where it's like, okay, even the brain's trying to be more productive and, and do you know spend less energy when it doesn't have to, and and that's why, again, those hardwired habits they're there even after a long term. Like there's stories about how um, you know a habit gets overridden and yet it's still there, and vice versa, like overriding old ones with good ones and overriding good ones with old ones and that it's just a matter of kind of – it's almost like Lego building blocks where you take the middle block out and change it for something else. Right, right. Well, I, I mean I think we all know people who have, for instance, you know, gave up cigarettes two years ago or two decades ago and they still crave a smoke with their morning coffee. That's clearly not a physical addiction at play, right? It, addictions don't last right. decades. Um, but it's clearly a habit dysfunction. But we know that the neurology of, of habit dysfunction of habits and the neurology of addiction, they sort of occur in very similar parts of the brain. 
And so to someone under the sway of a habit like cigarette smoking and habit dysfunction, it feels very, very similar. Yeah, definitely. So in, in the book, you, you kind of break it down into with all these different academic studies and interviews, and then there's a bunch of other research too, and, and you can listeners can find all of that over at thepowerofhabit.com. But the way you break the book down into the three parts where the first one's about focusing on how habits are emerged in, in individuals and then kind of moving on and moving on as well into the, the neurology of the habit formation and how it's very much about the brain and how you build and new habits and can change old ones. But I was really interested to see the second and third parts take place where you have the, the second part where it's about successful companies and organizations and how they use habits and then also the, the habits of societies. Right. And uh, I, I love – I loved reading about the Alcoa uh, with Michael – I think it's Michael O'Neill or, or if it's – I'm Paul forgetting O'Neill. his name. Yeah, Paul O'Neill where he comes in and decides that the one habit that kind of needed to change in terms of the culture of Alcoa was safety – and I found that fascinating how that – why he chose that, but then also how that spread to the rest of the organization as kind of a keystone habit. That's right. So, so this gets to this research that sort of indicates that there are some habits that seem to be more influential than others, right? They, when they begin to change, they, set, they seem to set off a chain reaction that changes other habits as well. Within, within the academic literature, these are known as keystone habits. And, and Alcoa is a perfect example of this because when Paul O'Neill came in as CEO, there was a lot of pressure for him to focus on productivity or efficiency. But instead, he said his number one priority was going to be changing worker safety habits, and the reason why is because he believed that worker safety would be a keystone habit for the organization, that if he could get people to change how they behaved on worker safety, it would set off this chain reaction that would change how they're working on other things as well. And that's exactly what happened. Alcoa went from being sort of struggling to the second highest performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average in just a handful of years. And the biggest part of why was because what Paul will tell you is that he decided he needed to establish a, a habit of excellence. And he needed to find someone, something that everyone could sign on to, someplace where change was possible. And the thing about worker safety is that everyone feels strongly about worker safety, right? Workers definitely feel strongly about worker safety because they don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Managers feel strongly about it because they don't, they don't want to, the, the morale to go down. They don't want to deal with injuries and, and they don't, they know that it impacts productivity. It was something that everyone could rally around. And as the patterns began to change around worker safety, they changed throughout the organization in other ways as well. Yeah, and, and I love the fact that, again, he picked the one thing that, you know, nobody's going to be against safety. That would be crazy. And yet by establishing that, that pattern of excellence with that habit of this is what we're doing, this is who we are, this is what we do is is safety, that then spread – and, and in effect, it almost proved, hey, look, we can do – I mean if we decide we're, doing, we're going to do this, then we do it. And then it spreads to these other um, pieces all around the organization, very much like how you know, if you pick the, the keystone habit in an individual where you know, someone, for example, starts working out once a week, how that spreads into the rest of their you know, well-being and routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like – yeah, it, it it matters to choose the right thing. What would you suggest as a way to maybe d- 
decide where do you how do you, how would an individual maybe decide or an organization decide what's that one keystone? How do you do the research on that to discover what would be your keystone habit to start working on? Well, I think the key is to recognize that keystone habits are powerful because they typically have emotional cores, right? They, oftentimes, when people feel um, when when people find a keystone habit, it tends to change how they think about themselves. And the parts of our self-concepts that are really malleable typically have emotional centers, right? It's, it, it's not those aspects of sort of our intellectual life that tend to be self-definitional. It tends to be the parts of our emotional life. And so one of the ways that, that experts will say, you know, find the keys and habit for your organization or for yourself is to look for the types of change that seem to irrationally scare you. Because if there's something about that change that seems scary and you, you feel like it shouldn't fe- seem scary, it signals that it's something deep within sort of your psyche. And therefore, if it starts to change, it will set off this chain reaction for others as well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that basically that resistance or that fear of that change over all other changes that you could have chosen to, to pick changing, that that's the one that's going to be the one that creates the domino effect. Yeah. That's great. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you also said that, that often after even rewiring habits, that that's not enough, that it comes down to belief as well. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I'll probably have to take off after, after um, this answer. But the, one of the things that's been very clear is that oftentimes for habits to change in a permanent sense, people have to believe that change is possible. So one of the biggest problems is, or one of the biggest questions in psychology is, why do some people manage to change for a while and then suddenly relapse, right? People who are um, alcoholics or smokers, they can go two weeks, three weeks without a drink, and then suddenly, like, you know, something happens and it sets them back. And it seems to be that one of the biggest differences between people who maintain sustainable change and those who relapse is their, their belief in themselves that they have the ability to change. And belief, it turns out, is something that can be practiced. It's essentially a muscle that can be built up. That's why, for instance, in Alcoholics Anonymous, many of the 12 steps focus on this belief in a higher power. It's, it's not actually important that you believe in a higher power to get sober. But that seems to be powerful for many people in AA because there's something about practicing belief that helps you eventually believe in yourself. And that belief in self seems to be critical to creating long-lasting change. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And so that practice of belief, it's almost that other driving force outside of the biochemical re-engineering, if you will, that that happens in terms of making a habit possible. Right. Great. Well, Charles, I know you have to go. Thank you so much for sharing – with us about this. Again, the, the book is called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. And I'll have the link to that in the show notes. Thanks for having me on. So if you think of this, this, this thing called a 
habit, your brain is already trying to make sense of everything, make sense of the world, make sense of behavior, create behavior so that it doesn't have to go through the process of doing the work every single time you want to do the same sequence of events or behaviors or actions that you normally do. And it's trying to do this all in an unconscious way and then act itself out from it from your unconscious to your conscious mind. That's why it's hard to change habits, because your brain is working to maintain that unconscious control over what you're asking it to do. In other words, your brain is already trying to do its own version of productivity for itself, almost independently of you. It takes those tasks, those behaviors, and tries to form them into habits, into recipes. Add this, then this. If this, then that, in other words, so that it can free up its brain power in order to to do new things and be ready for the next thing. Once you start to understand this, it makes sense. You can start to reprogram or help your brain or get on your brain's team in a way to create those habits that help it and therefore help you. Think about it. When you learned to tie your shoes, it took practicing and doing over and over. But now, when you go to tie your shoes, do you think about it at all? It's that same thing with these other things, the the chunking, as Charles was referring to it as. Your brain converts that sequence of actions into a routine. And some people are Again, and I said this, this was in, uh, somebody asked me this the other day. I was like, so how do you figure out your routine? And I'm just like, some people are adverse to routines. They don't want to do them. However, because they feel they're so, they, they feel held back or boxed in by structure. And I get that. However, you follow routines daily and you don't even know it. You brush your teeth. You butter your toast after it comes out of the toaster. Not before. You know the right sequence of actions. So in other words, you create your own recipe. So somebody that has an aversion to structure, to routine, and wants to be free to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, I hear you. It makes sense. I get it. You're, You're a different personality from me, but I say create your own recipe because you use routines every day regardless of if you're aware of it or not. Again, like I said, brushing your teeth, you put the toothpaste on before you scrub that brush all over your teeth. Otherwise, it's pointless. Yes, there's leeway to do things in different orders in different places. And that's what I'm saying is, again, there's no one regimented way to start your day or end your day or go through a routine. What I am saying, though, is that your brain regardless of your workflow or lifestyle design or whatever you want to call it, your personality style, your brain is trying to be productive and be organized in a certain way because it's trying to create those routines. And so I'm just saying, consider working with your brain instead of against it. I know I have worked against mine. So if you take that in mind and you go with this chunking, this looking at a cue looking at the routine or action, and then looking at what the reward is, there are probably things in your life where the routine is is the thing you don't want to do anymore. You have to take a look at what those cues are that are causing you or sparking that in you, that routine. And then also what rewards you're giving yourself or what outcome there is that you enjoy 
Because even if you don't like what that routine action is, and it's destructive and even self-sabotaging in a way, you're rewarding yourself. I don't know how, but you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't continue to keep doing it. It doesn't even have to be that strong of a reward. And that's the thing. You have to keep in mind this whole reward system. We're looking to get rid of a bad habit, and we don't take into account the reward. So we quit smoking, or we quit drinking, or we quit... I don't know, junk food. We don't replace it with something that rewards us in the same way. Or we try to change too many habits at once. Like Charles was talking about, there's this thing known as a keystone habit. So I highly encourage you to, again, take his advice about the keystone habit and how you find that keystone habit. What change are you most emotionally connected to? Why is it that change that is the hardest to give up having fear about, because again, most likely that's the one you need to make the the change on. And then once you've picked that keystone change, you have to pick your cue and you have to pick your reward. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's actually quite hard, but it's pretty much impossible without taking into account any of what I've just said, because often it's going to take as much time or more to undo that programmed response that your your you and your brain have done and put into action as a habit. One of the other things that you need to keep in mind is and and this is something I personally uh in talking with some people lately have figured out for myself is that I tend to want to make a change in one specific area, but when I make that change, I raise that bar incredibly high. The best analogy I can give you is that say you're somebody who's never ran before, but they say, okay, I'm signing up for a marathon this weekend and they do no training, but they go out and try to just run that marathon and then they fail. You know, they can't even make it past, you know, they probably make it what a marathon is. Well, a marathon's a lot of miles. A 5k is what? 3.2 miles. You see what I'm saying? Like even somebody saying, okay, I'm going to do 5k this weekend. If they've never trained and never ran, they're not going to succeed. So why set yourself up for failure immediately? However, what you could do is you can set yourself up for incremental change, set that bar low enough to the point where you can jump it. In other words, look at the change that needs to happen through the lens of instead of setting yourself up for failure, set yourself up to succeed on a smaller scale. Then once you can succeed on a smaller scale, then you can raise the bar. You can raise it higher, you can clear it, you can jump over it, and then you can continue to spread that out. It's very much like Crystal Payne talked about where discipline begets discipline. You don't change all aspects of your life overnight and say, okay, I'm going to – I'm going to eat healthy starting right now. I'm going to do morning exercise every day starting right now. I'm go- and you're going to fail across the board at all things, and they domino in uh, in a negative way, all falling over. And instead, you find that keystone habit. You find a way to get some wins and some momentum from that keystone habit in the place that you need, and then. You continue to take that incremental change, that incremental success from that point and move forward with it. I share this because this is specifically some of the revelations, personal revelations that I've come to in my own life. Honest. It's one of the things that I've had to get honest about with myself. And 
So full disclosure, like that is where I have been for a while. And that is the revelation that I've come to is that the changes in my life are not about full scale lifestyle habitual overhaul, though that's needed in some areas. It's finding the specific keystone elements and habits that are going to set a foundational building place for the rest of everything else that needs to change. And by putting some pressure on those so that they're solid enough to then to slowly begin building upon further up and further out. So I hope if you'd like to dive into this further, go check out Charles's book, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. Thanks again for listening to Beyond the To-Do List. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. I know I enjoy recording it for you. Thank you again to Doodle for sponsoring this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Make sure to go check out Doodle at beyondthetodolist.com slash doodle. Take the stress out of scheduling your one-on-one and group meetings with others. Again, go to beyondthetodolist.com slash doodle. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Learn how to podcast, theorize over the TV shows Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and Under the Dome, laugh with our clean comedy, delve into science fiction and philosophy, learn critical thinking from movie reviews, and more at noodle.mx.